From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to episode number six of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. In a world dominated by corporate media, how can we create more democratic alternatives? A few weeks ago, we profiled the work of War News Radio, and today we focus on one of the most influential grassroots media organizations in the U.S., Project Censored. We begin with a report produced by four St. Lawrence University students. Fake news. It's a polarizing term, and everyone and their dog has a strong opinion on it. But let's step back and think about it outside of our current political climate. Did you know that five corporations control the majority of our media? Doug Hecker and PBS News told us that. Think about it. Five corporations controlling most of what we see. That's a lot of power. You have to ask, whose voices are being left out? These corporations, Time Warner, Disney, Murdoch's News Corporation, Bertelsmann of Germany, and Viacom are worth billions of dollars. They're CEOs, millionaires. So where do they get their money from? Other corporations. They advertise for each other, become shareholders for each other. It's the same handful of elites propping each other up and controlling our media. So if this is where they're getting their money from, how does that influence their ability to report the truth? As everyday citizens are becoming more conscious of the manipulation that occurs by mainstream media on our perception of reality, people are exploring the realm of independent news. Journalism that seeks out different points of view. Journalism that isn't tied down to corporate interests. Journalism that allows ordinary people to report the news. Standing up to the biggest corporations in the country, however, isn't a walk in the park. There are some serious challenges, and some people wonder, is alternative journalism viable? Is it worth it? In order to better understand multidimensional works of independent media, Ayla Schneer, Iman Ma'ani, Katie Caffrey, and Bruce Wang, freshmen at St. Lawrence University, looked into Project Censored, a grassroots media organization that was founded in 1976. If you walked into their workspace, you won't find a newsroom with trained and experienced journalists. Instead, you'll find a college classroom of students, writers, and faculty mentors. Likely, you'll be in one of the dozens of participating colleges in the U.S., but you could end up in Spain or Canada as well. In any case, students and professors work together to report stories that don't make the news. Stories we rarely hear about. Stories that have been censored. Censorship in America. Don't we have the First Amendment? We do, but Project Censors define censorship in a broader context. According to their website, censorship is, quote, the subtle yet constant sophisticated manipulation of reality by news media. This includes not only the exclusion of newsworthy stories and topics from coverage, but also the manipulation of coverage based on political pressure, economic pressure, and legal pressure, end quote. In other words, anything that interferes with the news being reported accurately and fairly is a form of censorship. Project Censored plays a key role in promoting independent news to meet this goal of establishing a truly free press. Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censored, compares corporate media and independent journalism to the following. 
I think about this in terms of food metaphors, and it's kind of like a situation where if you think of the corporate media as being like the fast food restaurants, they're everywhere and they have huge advertising budgets and they're kind of known entities. And so they have a lot of customers. They have a lot of reach and and influence. I think independent news is the locally sourced you know who produced it. It's you know organic. I'm probably stretching this metaphor over far. And it doesn't necessarily cost any more. It just is not as well known and widely appreciated as the corporate alternative. From what we gathered from Andy, independent news is not a person in their garage with a tinfoil hat screaming about aliens. It's a form of journalism that seeks to report stories that we don't see when we turn on the TV. That is why Project Censored was established to ensure that we have organic options in a society saturated by fast food restaurants. Project Censored is here to provide citizens with another option, an option that allows for the possibility of living in a society where free press exists. The big question here, however, is how do they go about promoting media democracy, and is their approach effective? In order to answer this question, we interviewed four people who have done work with Project Censored. Doug Hecker, the co-director of the 2013 documentary about Project Censored, Susan Rahman, a professor at the College of Marin, Andy Lee Roth, the associate director of Project Censored, and Isabel Snow, a student at the College of Marin. In order to fully understand Project Censored, we need to understand how their stories are created. Let's start with what they're best known for, their yearbooks. Every year since they were founded, Project Censored has created a book of their top 25 stories that didn't make the news. These yearbooks aim to create a greater understanding of global awareness and stories that we rarely hear about. This book truly reflects the culmination of a year of long, hard work and censorship in journalism. So what does the process look like? How are these books made? In our talk with Andy Lee Roth, we asked him the details of what goes into making the yearbook. He tells us, I've been involved with nine of the censored yearbooks. The process by which we collectively determine the top 25 stories is really a year-long process that involves dozens and dozens and even hundreds of people. This year's book, the censored uh, 2019 Fighting the Fake News Invasion book, we had 351 students who were contributing research just to the top 25 chapter. And they came from 13 different college and university campuses across North America. So that team of people is doing research and sending in stories, which we then post on the Project Censored website. And in the spring of each year, we conduct a vote among all the students and faculty who have contributed stories. We whittle down the story list from about 300 or so stories down to about 30 Those 30 stories then become the main candidates. It's approximately 30. We send those on to our panel of 28 judges who are international experts on media, journalism. We have a former Federal Communications Commission member on our panel. We have professors. We have editors and reporters. And that esteemed group of people actually votes to then rank order the stories. So by the time a story makes it into our top 25 list, it's undergone roughly five separate stages of review and evaluation for its accuracy, its quality and importance, and to the extent to which it's been covered by the top 25. Running this project isn't easy. It takes a lot of time and hard work. But what's it like for the students who research and write these stories? 
What's it like for the teachers who guide their students through the process? Here's Susan Rahman on the process of selecting news stories. So basically, they have to look at independent news. So, you know, most of us more than likely do a bit of teaching to that, like, what is independent news? What does that even mean? How do we make it real to them, comparing it to, like, corporate media or whatever? So we do a bunch of that. We also have a lot of independent news sources listed on the website, so they can go directly to that and choose from that. Uh, a list of sites and then decide, oh, does that seem like a site I'd like to look at? And then if they do, then they can grab a story and then the process then, is it going to be legit? Are we going to be able to kill it? Are we going to look for it in corporate media? Are we seeing it somewhere? And if we're seeing it somewhere, then we give credit to corporate media and we move on to a different story. As Susan said, professors guide their students in understanding independent news and they have a list of websites that their students can search through to find stories. So it's a guided process, not like putting a fish on land and expecting it to walk. What happens after they pick a topic? Here's Susan again. So it's the VIN project. This is a term that Project Censored uses that means validated independent news. So basically they hunt down a story, and then they go through kind of the routine of, you know, making sure it's not covered in corporate media, and then they'll they'll kind of figure all that out and then they'll submit me a draft and I'll give them feedback and then they'll do whatever changes I'm asking them to do. And then I'll make sure I can't find it in corporate media. And then once it's all kind of validated and edited fine, then I just send it on to Andy and then he does his own vetting and whatever editing he feels needs to be done. And then it goes onto the website and then it goes into the nomination pool where you can vote for it for the top 25. Students are free to choose their own stories as long as they have not already been covered by the mainstream media. This allows students to be creative and write about issues that matter to them. Moreover, it allows students to think for themselves, a skill that has not been encouraged by corporate media. Through this process, ordinary students are empowered to shine a light on issues that matter to them. At the same time, this process also ensures that certain journalistic standards are met and that no one steps out of any ethical guidelines. Yearbooks may have been the start of Project Censored, but the project's grown quite a lot since the 70s. With the website, radio show, and worldwide network of colleges participating in the project, it's no wonder that the audience has expanded too. Not only that, but technology has made their work easier. Here's Susan. Well, it's made it easier for us to connect. You know, we're able to have these conversations. We're able to, um, I mean, just our meetings, we have board meetings and we can all get on a call together, you know, despite the fact that we're from different parts of the country. And certainly the website has made it so that more people can see Project Censored. I mean, going from a print book that comes out once a year to this web presence that's there 24-7, that's made a huge difference in, in how many people are able to know about the project. And the radio show and just different stuff that we're doing, technology has, I think, been our friend in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm sure there's ways that it hasn't, but I think it's made a big difference. Doug Hecker gave an example of why it is so important for Project Censored to maintain their independence. Yeah, the problem is, is whenever you intermingle, you know, money and finances with 
the truth, it's not a good combination because things are going to be skewed. For instance, you know, if somebody is taking money from Coca-Cola for advertising, you know, is that media outlet going to report a scathing document about Coca-Cola and their and their business practices? Chances are no, because they risk losing advertising. So now you have a conflict of interest. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Since 2007, Weave News has been investigating underreported stories, highlighting alternative perspectives, and promoting grassroots media making and critical media literacy. If you're interested in joining us as a content contributor, just visit weavenews.org submissions. Now, back to more Interweaving. Remember how we mentioned that financial incentives determine which stories get published in the mainstream media? I'm sure you might be wondering how Project Censored escapes those financial pressures. Project Censored's funding model is very different from that of the corporate media, and this comes with its own set of challenges. People go on the website and they can be a subscriber. People buy the books, which don't really make us that much money. We get donations from people who care about the project but we are not funded by anybody. We don't have corporate funding. If we get our act together and write a grant here and there, sometimes we have grant money, but we don't have a full-time staff to write grants, so we don't do that very often. But sometimes we write a grant here and there. So yeah, we don't have a lot of funding sources, let's just say. Susan guarantees us that Project Censored is not funded by corporations, meaning they're not tied down to the whims of corporate power but that doesn't solve the problem. As she pointed out, Project Censor does not have much funding. So, how have they been able not only to survive, but grow over the past four decades? We're a tiny little project, even though it seems like we're big and awesome. We're very small. We have very little money. And so, we don't really pay very many people to do very many things. Um, and the people that we pay have actual real jobs and they just get paid a little money. Like I'm the vice president of Media Freedom Foundation, but I don't have a salary. I just do it because it's important to me. As Susan said, Project Censored pays their contributors little to no money. People contribute because they are passionate about independent journalism. And that passion is what keeps Project Censored going. When asked about the advantages of their funding model, Susan responded by saying that they would never use corporate funding. Oh, no, yeah, we don't, we will never do that. And I think being small is okay. All of the things that we talked about as a project are really important and meaningful to us. And we really, really, really wish that the world would catch on and like wake up to some of the stuff or all of the stuff we're talking about. But that being said, we don't ever want to be like the corporate media. You know, it's a trade-off, right? Andy agrees with Susan, saying that their funding model is what allows them to maintain their independence. That's not to say it's it's easy, right? I mean, I think there still are real financial imperatives that any news outlet, independent or corporate, has to face up to in a market economy. But it's, they're very different models. And so we at Project Censored, we're somewhere on that other end, right? We're primarily grassroots. Our website is free of advertising. That costs us, uh, but it's important, I think, for uh, maintaining our independence. Andy and Susan both think that their work is worth it, that their ability to shed light on stories that don't make the news is worth the effort that it takes. But what exactly is Project Censored's impact? 
One answer is that students come out with long-lasting understanding of independent journalism and social justice. My students come out of this knowing their voice is important and that social justice is something that they need to be thinking about for the rest of their life. We can't just wait for change to happen. We have to be part of it. The getting people motivated to understand that they have a role to play is one of the best things about being a teacher. Students come into classes like Susan's with different interests. Some have been passionate about media their whole lives, but others are taking it to fulfill some general requirement. Of course, these classes don't automatically convert all their students into activists, but many of them become passionate about media issues for the rest of their lives. For the people that it's really resonated with, it's really resonated with them. You know, they still text me articles like, did you see this? Did you see And I'm like, I guess this matters to you. That's awesome. I think for a lot of people that found comfort in this idea that corporate media is really not out there to kind of provide you with information, but here's stuff that you can look at. I think for those people, they just stick with it, you know, and it becomes part of their regular activities of daily living. And so I think it's been impactful for many students. Project Censored encourages its writers to think critically about what they are reading. Here's Isabel Snow, a student at the College of Marin who has co-authored one of the chapters in the 2019 Censored book and who has helped organize Project Censored's Media Freedom Summit. Well, their books deconstruct a lot of the ways in which news sources are regulated and censored. They encourage the consumer to be active. So in the act of producing a VIN, of monitoring independent news stories and realizing which ones are censored, which ones are neglected, and then creating my own independent news story that highlighted one of those news stories that were overwhelmed by other more junk food news, and then also monitoring how often junk food news spreads across digital platforms, social media, and uh, Mm -hmm. news websites. I sort of became more attentive to it and realized through creating work that critiques that process, how I could use my voice to identify the ways in which other people are censored. Project Censored teaches students to produce independent news stories and to analyze junk food news or news stories that are sensationalized or subjective news. Project Censored's impact reaches far beyond students. People of all generations have been touched by Project Censored's work. Project Censored is very good at community activism and reaching out not only the students in the community, but the larger community of the students that it supports. At the Media Freedom Summit, we noticed that a lot of the guests and attendees were older generation that is galvanizing the voices of the younger generation. Many of Project Censored's stories have made their way into the establishment media. Here's Andy. Yeah, we definitely have had that happen. I think a few years ago in our books, we had several stories on the U.S. campaign of drone strikes, weaponized drones. And I would say maybe two years ago or so, that story kind of broke through to getting more widespread corporate media coverage. That story is one I was super interested in. Although it's remote for me as an individual, a privileged person living in the United States, I find the idea when I imagine it of being 
under surveillance by drones and especially weaponized drones that could level the building I'm living in at any moment with hardly any awareness of mine. I find that terrifying. So I was following this for a while with some of my students. And one of the things we found was that one of the best sources of information about drone strikes is the Bureau for Investigative Journalism, which is a London-based organization. This may seem small, but it shows that the work that Project Censored and other grassroots media organizations do can make a difference. Sometimes it is difficult to realize that these stories we read about and hear about on TV are happening to real people. Independent news helps highlight these struggles and can make a real difference in people's lives. In our discussion with Isabel, we wanted to hear more about the opinion of a student on why media activism and independent journalism are fundamental and necessary for us. What first intrigued me about independent journalism was the fact that as a young woman, I was aware of the messages that I was given by a lot of corporate interests Mm -hmm. and how ingrained that is into a lot of young women and how gendered norms are effectively blasted into the digital space, into conversations, the way that we interact with people. And I noticed that a lot of the ways in which these messages are spread to people is through platforms that are connected to corporate interests. But I wasn't able to connect all the dots by myself. It was a lot of the support of my teacher at College of Marin, Susan Rahman, who effectively identified all of the ways in which our media is not encapsulating the full story for a lot of global social issues, which was the class that I took with her where we worked on the censored book. So it was really the work of Susan Rahman who empowered me to be more critical of traditional news media. Isabel is referring here to the power of community. She tells us that when we are so immersed in the messages corporate media has thrown at us, our perception becomes controlled. So where does that leave us? It leaves us at a place where we, you and I, have to start independently investigating how we can establish a free press. Should we turn to organizations such as Project Censored Or is there another option? The answer does not lie with just you and I. It lies within the community. So take a deep breath, step back, and start working with your community to find ways of promoting a truly free press. This podcast was written, edited, and produced by Ayla Schneer, Iman Mani, Katie Caffrey, and Bruce Wang. Also, a special thanks to Andy Lee Roth, Isabel Snow, Susan Ramon, and Doug Hecker for being a part of the process. Up next, we bring you some of the voices of Weave News staff who contributed to the most recent Project Censored Yearbook. Nicole Eigbrett, Jana Morgan, Steve Peraza, and I co-authored a chapter on stories from 2017 that fit the category of what Project Censored calls news abuse. Stories that are widely covered by establishment media, but covered in a way that often leaves key issues unnamed or unexamined. We focused our analysis on a number of U.S. establishment media outlets, such as the New York Times, CNN, and NPR. Here are Eigbert and Peraza speaking at Project Censored's 2018 Media Freedom Summit 
at the College of Marin. Hi, everyone. I'm Nicole. I was really excited to be part of this critical media analysis and really contribute to this year's Project Censored. And when we were discussing in our group what issues of news abuse we wanted to take up, the first thing that jumped into my mind was the ceaseless coverage of Trump voters. And so the first thing I looked at, I did a survey of just how many times the phrase Trump voters appeared in these media outlets. And in 2017, Trump voters appeared in the headlines of 2,040 stories. And of these stories, 49% of them included these descriptors. Poor, um, 340 stories had that. Working class, 241 stories. White working class, populist, Rust Belt, Heartland. And in thinking about the motivations of Trump supporters, you know, 15% of these stories did include the term racism, nationalism, or nativism. So this is definitely the understanding that we've all come out with. But this forced narrative is really hiding a bigger picture. In my essay of the chapter, I'm arguing that establishment media was really reinforcing a simplified class conflict. Because by and large, the racialized component, especially in 2017, immediately following the election, was left out of the conversation, right? You know, you were constantly hearing that Trump voters were motivated by their economic anxiety. This coverage was really reinforcing a longstanding classist mythology that exists in our country by really blaming explicitly the white working class for Trump's claim to power. And I'm not saying they're not responsible, but the Washington Post was basically the only outlet of these seven in 2017 to point out the fact that the majority of Trump supporters were actually wealthy Republicans living in the suburbs and the cities. But did we ever really hear those stories or have those interviews? Ultimately, all this coverage was really reinforcing these classist narratives and shielding the hegemonic elite. And in a similar vein, I'm arguing that because of this hyper-obsession with the mythology and motivation of Trump supporters, the establishment media was also further harming the already marginalized communities that knew from the beginning that electing Trump was bad news. But where are those think pieces? Ultimately, the coverage of Trump's entire presidency can also be considered news abuse because it really served as a distraction from the real damage of his policies and his destabilization of the middle class, the war in Yemen, everything that's happening to immigrants and DACA recipients in our country. You know, 2017, we had Charlottesville, right? And I think that drew a lot of attention to the Antifa movement. And so, again, rather than giving people like Alex Jones the mic on NPR, why weren't you reaching out to more of these left-wing activists, rather than speculating from your seat in the newsroom about what they're doing, get them on the mic so they could share their story and share their perspectives. In my essay, you'll see some quotes from different interviews. Again, Trump voters were granted, but activists and people on the left were not. Good morning, everyone. My name is Steve Peraza. I'm currently an assistant professor of history at Buffalo State College, where I teach American history, specialize in African-American history. And so I jumped at the opportunity to write about Colin Kaepernick. We live in a new nadir in race relations. 
The first Nadir is 1880 to 1920. Really, the capstone of that was lynching, so extrajudicial killings. I'm making the case that today we have a very similar problem, a very similar low point. I think it manifests in just the general way we cannot talk about race without it devolving into some kind of really tense argument or a break in communication altogether. But I've been tracing three particular pillars in this. The first is extrajudicial killing. So maybe we're not seeing lynchings, but we are seeing African-Americans killed without any recourse to justice or the law. It's happening outside the courts. It's happening you know, in the hands of vigilantes as well as police, right? So from Trayvon Martin, Eric Gardner, Sandra Bland, we see a number of these killings. The second pillar here is colorblind laws. We've seen this at the end of Reconstruction with the rise of Jim Crow, the grandfather clause, a number of different laws that don't use race in them but target a specific racial group and discriminate against them, prevent them from having access to civil rights. And then the third is arguably the most controversial in other areas where I've had this conversation. There's a crisis in black leadership. Many aren't aspiring to be Barack Obama. Instead, they're aspiring to be Kanye West or J. Cole or Colin Kaepernick. In thinking of Colin Kaepernick, I recognize that he fits into a long tradition of misrepresenting black Americans and black protest in the national media. And so I focus a lot on the narrative of the culture war that results from his protest of the flag. So instead of actually taking what he said his protest was about, police killings and that kind of extrajudicial killings and injustice in society, the establishment media starts to focus largely on the ways that his protest divides people on the issue of patriotism on the issue of the flag, of disrespect for veterans in the army. I mean, it didn't really matter what he said he was protesting. What mattered was how it was going to be represented in this national media. And so the conversation went far from police killings. In fact, in 2017, the police killings increased. And that never really got into the news. Instead, we we focused largely on what President Trump was saying about Colin Kaepernick and, and also what the NFL should do for others who protested in this incorrect way, right? In my piece, I concentrated largely on this distortion of the narrative. But the lesson that I have now, actually, in reflecting on what what was written is that what I thought was a major sacrifice for Colin Kaepernick, right? He's no longer a quarterback in the NFL, actually turned out to be a commercial boon for him. Black American protest is being commercialized at the expense of the issues that everyday black Americans are facing in their communities. So it becomes okay to look at Colin Kaepernick as you would Muhammad Ali, talk about him as you would Carlos Jones and so on. And and a lot of the pieces said, okay, you know, look at Colin Kaepernick in this tradition of uh, black athletes who protested. But that also served to sell magazines, sell newspapers, and now sell sneakers and jerseys and other commodities. And so looking back at what I wrote earlier, I see that there's a commercialization of black protest that is curious and an outcome I didn't really expect to happen here.
ultimately, I'm not sure where this is going to lead for black leadership. I think this crisis remains. Um, I ask my students all the time, you know, who are the thought leaders, who are the thinkers and doers of the current protest movement? And they have little to say. But Colin Kaepernick still has a lot to teach us. And I'm hoping that there's something else that's gained from this other than the sale of a couple of sneakers. Thank you. Thanks to all who contributed to this episode, especially to Katie Caffrey, Iman Maani, Ayla Schneer, and Bruce Wang, part of the first year seminar on grassroots media for the next generation at St. Lawrence University. Make sure to check out Project Censored's latest yearbook, Censored 2019, featuring our chapter on news abuse, and watch for the forthcoming Censored 2020 book this fall with another contribution from Weave News. As always, you can find more information about the materials and organizations mentioned on this program by visiting our podcast page at weavenews.org interweaving. Join us in two weeks for the next episode of Interweaving. For everyone at Weave News, I'm John Collins. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at weavenews. There you can find out how you can support us or join us in our work. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving. Interweaving.